Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jeanette Winterson, whose latest novel is Frank Kiss Stein. Earlier novels, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, Power Book, The Passion, this is the 11th novel, according to this list in here mm, in the yeah. book. I don't know. I never count them. <laughs> There's collections of short stories, edited short story collections, three books of nonfiction, four children's books, a comic book in there, uh, an adaptation for TV of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, and an adaptation for the stage of Power Book. Frank Kistein deals with issues that have been going on in all your books, the role of women, the relationship of humans and technology, and also gender, male, female, mm-hmm. and whatever's in between. So I want to start by asking, what brought you to the idea of going back to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and then putting it together with a current day story? I've been reading about AI for years. It, it, it interests me. Um, I like to keep up with what's going on in tech and science just because I'm a curious person. So that was just me reading privately for myself. And then I wanted to reread Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because it was the 200th anniversary of the publication. And of course, as soon as I did that, the two things came together in my mind. And I thought, all right, we're the first generation who can read Mary Shelley's story knowing that we too will share the planet with self-created life forms. No one else has ever been able to do that. But we're going to create these life forms not out of the discarded body parts of the graveyard, but out of the zeros and ones of code. So we're at the place that she foresaw, but of course she couldn't foresee how it would be done. And so I wanted to work with that, bring those things together, because I think it's important to open up the conversation about AI, both embodied and non-embodied, you know, with robotics and computer intelligence, and ask, how is this going to affect us? What's going to happen to Project Human when Homo sapiens is no longer top of the tree? You know, at the minute, computers are much better at data processing than humans are, and we all know that. Uh, And they're good at games like chess and Go. But... They don't think for themselves in any shape or form. Uh, They don't reason. And a mark of human intelligence is our ability to reason. But that is going to change. There's no question it's going to change. And I'm worried that people are not really aware of what's happening out there. And I think one of the jobs you have as a writer is, is to be the canary in the coal mine and say, listen, something's going on. Let's think about it together. There are elements of films and other books that pop up, whether consciously or unconsciously, you can't avoid, in some sense, HAL in 2001 or Mm. Terminator, Mm. because those also take us into dystopias that are machine-related as opposed to, say, Atwood's man-related or (laughs) woman-related dystopias. But I noticed in the course of reading the book 
that while it's a novel and the characters are either fictional or they're fictional scenes with real characters, that in essence, this is, maybe I'm wrong, it, it felt almost like an essay, if, if you know what I mean, on, the, on these various ideas. Were you using fiction then to kind of expand the questions and the ideas in your mind? Fiction's very good at telling stories. That's what it's for. And people need a story. They need characters uh, in order to deal with ideas which would otherwise be abstract. Um, some of these ideas are complex. And so I thought if I rooted them both in their genesis in the past, uh, in Mary Shelley's story, and in as it was then, the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, because that's the moment where humankind decisively takes charge of the planet. You know, once we start getting fossil fuels out of the ground, it's a game changer, as we now know, as we face climate breakdown. So what I wanted was to give the reader a stretch of time to say, look, this is where it all begins in the early 1800s, and this is where we are now. And where do you think we'll go? So it's not a dystopia and it doesn't take us into the future. It simply brings us into this present day and opens up lots of questions around the issues. Before we move into the present day story, as part of my research after reading the book, I did watch Mike Lee's film, Peterloo. Mm. And the connection there, which you bring up in the book, is that the loom changed how people were hired and fired, and the loom led directly to the massacre known as Peterloo. Yes. Now, that's in Manchester. You yeah. would have known about that all along. Oh, yes, because I was born in Manchester. You know, Manchester's the beginning city of the Industrial Revolution, and it's why there are so many Manchesters in the USA. You know, that's your first and original Manchester. I wanted, again, it's about history, really, to show that in some senses we have been here before because the Industrial Revolution was designed to bring about prosperity, supposedly uh, give people more opportunity. Of course, it didn't. It was about 100 years before any of the benefits of the Industrial Revolution were available to ordinary working people. It's the beginning of automation. So instead of having seven men and women working at their hand looms, you suddenly had automatic looms and one person minding them. But that put six people out of work. What I'm worried about is with the future of automation, you know, everybody's saying, oh, we're going to lose jobs. Yes, we are. But it could be amazingly liberating. There's no need for humans to do those crap jobs. Machines could do them for us. But in that case, we have to have a universal basic income so that everybody gets some money. So this could be a moment where we really start to socialize our resources and to distribute them more fairly. Or it can be, as usual, that the power will go into the hands of a very few. You know, and that's why Peterloo is so important, because Shelley, Mary Shelley's partner, the poet Percy Shelley, wrote a poem after the Peterloo massacre, which has the famous phrase in it, that uh, um, we are many, they are few, meaning that the people in charge were few, but the workers were many. Of course, being the many hasn't meant that the many have power, as we know now. And here we are, vulture capitalism, disaster capitalism, a new digital revolution on the doorstep. What are we going to do? Is it going to benefit the many? or the few. Jeanette Winterson, there's also the issue of gender comes up in many places in the book, particularly mm -hmm. in the modern day story involving a trans person. Does that play a role or is that a side issue, you think, when you're talking about men and women and machines? I wanted to mirror the characters that we meet 
at the beginning of the book in 1816 and just put them in the future, well, in the present without any explanation. So Mary Shelley becomes Rye Shelley, who is a young trans doctor and who is having an affair with the rather sinister but charismatic Victor Stein, who works in machine learning. It seemed to me when I was thinking, OK, how am I going to move these people into the future, i.e. our present? Mary Shelley would rather enjoy that transition because she, her whole book is about self-creation. Anybody who's ever written anything knows that you are also inventing yourself. So I thought, why not make Rye uh, trans? It's also a moment in time that maybe needs to be acknowledged. And right back in Orange is Not the Only Fruit, I wanted to put in a gay character and make that character mainstream, likeable, you know, not in a miserable, <laughs> phobic and shunned. And, and so I wanted to do this the same now with a trans character who is who is likeable, but who has edges and struggles and doesn't always get it right. So somebody who's fully rounded. An aside, just because I remembered... You chose not to use quotation marks. Why? Oh, they're boring. You know, Gertrude Stein was right about punctuation. Um, really, we should use it in order to make sense of, of what we're doing. Um, but otherwise, use it as little as possible. And I wanted to, to, to run the dialogue so that it was clear who was speaking from tone of voice and just make the page look a bit cleaner. Was that easy or hard? Because there, um, there was one place where I got a little confused in how mm. to go back, but it was the only place. Mm. It was it was it was a good thing to do because it, it's uh, it, it's it's a necessary discipline if you make that decision to be sure that your voices work. Otherwise, because there's a lot of dialogue in this book, I thought it's going to be too messy, and I would like to. I do like a clean-looking page. <laughs> <laughs> Jeanette Winterson, I want to talk about some of the details because you mix fact and fiction. Yeah. I assume that on a broad level, Mary Shelley's life is as it was. Oh, absolutely no. Um, I'm I'm not Donald Trump. Facts are facts. You know. Fiction writers have never been in a post-truth world. I mean, we know we make things up and we know what those things are. So it's pretty clear to us you know, where we stand on this. Um, so yes, all the facts around Mary Shelley's life are correct. There is one encounter which I have invented, and that is the one with Ada Lovelace, which is Lord Byron's daughter. Um, Ada Lovelace, of course, being the first person to think of the word programming for a computer that didn't even exist. And I thought, how remarkable that these two, both of them young women, at the same time, should be seeing this vision of the future. So, she knew Babbage in oh real yeah, life. Oh, yeah, Ada Lovelace did, yeah. She was oh. in her 20s. Babbage, who invented, really, the first computer, it's called the Difference Engine. They met, and he, he was attracted to her because she was feisty and outspoken. You know, as Byron's daughter, she had been told that she must not have anything to do with poetry or literature. This was put in writing by her father. So her mother thought, what can I do? Got her a mathematics tutor, and she turned out to be pretty good at it. And she understood that if Babbage ever built his machine she could as she put it program it which was an amazing insight and she also realized that if you could program it to do something you could program it to do anything why again well going back to your oh. original comment why did you want them to meet Oh, because it was irresistible, because of their connection through Lord Byron. You know, Byron was Mary Shelley's great friend, you know, although he was a monster of a different kind. She loved him, um, not sexually or romantically, but you know, it was a real friendship. And, of course, you know, when, when they first met, uh, they had that holiday on, on Lake Geneva. Byron's daughter, Ada Lovelace, had just been born. And I thought, 
we don't know if they, I mean, there's just nothing there to say that they did, but they may have done. There is no reason why they wouldn't have done. Jeanette Winterson, moving along to the modern day, so you have this character, Rye, mm. Mary originally, now Rye, who has kind of transcended binary sexuality, which what I've noticed among a lot of trans people is pretty common these days. Mm. Many of them have gone one side to the other and then out the other side. Mm. And once you have her, him, her, them, them. Uh, then you have to create a story around it. What brought you mm. to this character of Dr. Stein? Well, there had to be a mirror for Mary Shelley's character, Victor Frankenstein. And so the idea of someone working in machine learning um, with a, a first degree in computer science and later research in some rather more sinister areas um, for the US government seemed to me a, a reasonable trajectory of a story for that character. And then I wanted him to be attracted to Rye, partly because, as he, he puts it, Rye is, is, is ready for the future. He's future early because he's already redesigned his own body, which, if it all goes according to plan, we will all be able to do. You know, Ray Kurzweil writes about this pretty often, so his idea that once you can download consciousness, you can then choose to be in any body that you like. So all those shape-shifting myths that I can be an eagle and you can be a greyhound and today we can be an old guy and tomorrow a young woman. Theoretically, that is true. Well, but it also brings up something which finds itself into your book because it can't, which is, is there a soul? If mm. you can upload, are you uploading a soul? My thinking about it is the same way you came to that. Yeah. Well, the soul being a religious word, we're talking about consciousness, aren't we? We're talking about something that survives the, the physical material body. And at present, nothing does. Unless, if you're religious, you believe that you go to a better place or a worse place. The rest of us just think, no, when it's done, it's done. But whether we talk about consciousness, soul, spirit, essence, we're, we're talking about something which isn't represented by the biology that we are. And often people feel that, don't they? Especially as they get older, they look in the mirror and say, that can't be me. I still feel like somebody else somewhere else. That sense of that dislocation, I suppose, that human beings feel with their bodies, even when they're comfortable in them. It just doesn't feel quite right that this is all there is. And we've always struggled with that. And so now science is suggesting that what religion has always preached might be the case, that consciousness is not obliged to materiality. You're listening to an interview with Jeanette Winterson, whose latest novel is Frank Kiss Stein. There's also the element of Alcor, life extension, in the book. <laughs> yes. And uh, I knew a couple of life extension people a few years back. Did they do it? Well, actually, they ran a vitamin store in Albany, California, which is right next, next to Berkeley. And eventually they moved down to the desert. Did they? Went down to Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. I, and I've sort of lost touch with them. So I don't know exactly what that was about. And truthfully, they didn't talk a whole lot to me about it because mm. I kept thinking in my head disembodied heads and that mm. just didn't work for me. No, it doesn't work for me. I certainly wouldn't do it. Do I think it will work? Probably not. I don't think it will be necessary. I think it'll be an intermediate technology like the cassette tape. Everybody will think, why did you bother with that? <laughs> because we will, if 
the likes of Ray Kurzweil is correct, and we do find a way of brain mapping to an extent whereby the person can be replicated, then you certainly won't need to come back to life because you will never actually die. The only thing that will happen is that your your, your physical self will get old and decay and go, but the rest of you, you, the essence of you, will be preserved, which is a frightening thought. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of frightening thoughts, but yeah. then they all go back to Frankenstein. Yeah, they do. Even down to young Frankenstein. The parody is, you know, of course, you have a diseased brain, mm -hmm. and that takes over. Yeah. So we laugh at it, but it's not that silly. I mean, would you want to preserve Donald Trump? No, definitely <laughs> not. And, of course, the rich guys who can afford this, and they are guys and they are rich, are exactly the people that we do not want to preserve. I mean, you do, do you want Peter Thiel forever? No. <laughs> a couple of other areas that you cover. You bring in a history of Bedlam. Why? Yeah, the book's not just in two parts, Mary Shelley's past and our present. It's, there's also a, um, a third element, which is surreal and rather mysterious, which is that there is in Bedlam, the, the madhouse in London, um, the 18th, early 19th centuries, a character who calls himself Victor Frankenstein and claims that because Mary Shelley has created him, he can't die. Um, and this was something I wanted to play with because, because when you do create a fictional character, if the book is successful, they don't die. They outlive you. And I've been thinking about that as a writer. And I also thought, no, I want to slip in this third thing. It's just throwing another ball in the air to play with. The idea, I mean, in her book, she, it's about creating a monster. But she, has all, she, as the writer, has already created this world. And it didn't die. So it was a way of sliding that in. And also putting in something which is, is a bit sinister and scary in there. There's also caves under Manchester. There really are. There's a whole world under Manchester. It was part of the NATO pact after the war because, of course, the USA was in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And it was feared, uh, as everybody remembers, that the bomb would go off, that there could well be an, a nuclear war. You know, people were really, truly and properly scared that that was going to happen. So NATO paid for uh, in, in Manchester and in Birmingham and in London. You know, there are all the, these underground worlds um, which were meant to be secure bunkers in the event of a nuclear blast? Well, I've been told that these caves underneath a lot of cities came about because that's where they mined, originally mined the stone. Mm. I mean, that's how Paris happened. Mm, mm. Uh, and this was not the case in these cities then, or was no, it? No, these, 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 these were created deliberately. A bit like you know, Churchill's war rooms, which you get in London, so that they are secure from blast quite a powerful blast. There was a pub in there, a chapel, the, you know, little restrooms for people, a cafeteria, all of that. You can't go into most of it. Some of it is still classified, but it's under there. And then there's the story, another story in the book of Jack Good and Bletchley, mm. which I guess relates directly to decoding and the rise of the computer. Yeah, because it was Alan Turing's breakthrough at Bletchley Park during the Second World War, which allowed the development of the, the computer as we know it. And after that, Turing's team went to work at the University of Manchester on the world's first computers, including Turing's pal Jack Good, 
who was so disgusted by the way the British government treated Alan Turing, and you know who's driven to commit suicide for being a homosexual. And Jack Good wasn't gay himself, but he was a, he was an upright, decent fellow, and he thought, "I'm not staying here." And he left, and he came to California. Then he went to work at Virginia Tech, and he was the advisor to Stanley Kubrick on 2001: A Space Odyssey. And it was he who developed HAL, you know, the murderous computer. And Jack Good, you know, 50 years ago came up with that term, our last invention. As he said, once we create um, artificial intelligence which can think for itself, which is not the same as data processing, that will be our last invention. As he was pretty prophetic about this. And I think to myself, look, that guy really knew about numbers, so maybe we should trust him. Well, it also works that at a certain point, you use the computer to create smaller and smaller objects. So the tiny, tiny transistors that, or whatever they are, that are inside our iPhones mm. had to have been created by machine because we can't go that small. So no, it's already happening. It's already happening. And, you know, the iPhone in your pocket is infinitely more powerful than the 1986 Cray supercomputer, which took up a whole room. You know, that's how far and how fast we've come. You know, it's Moore's law, Gordon Moore, one of the founders of IBM, that computing power doubles every two years, which is massive. So where we are now, that was big, powerful, data-crunching machines, algorithms. Algorithm is just a, a way of solving a problem, but the steps have to be in the right order. And if they're not, chaos follows. But we haven't yet created a machine that can think for itself, or although we are making machines who can learn from data and then produce their own conclusions. So maybe we're not far off. Uh, that brings up the comic element of the book, which are the sex bots of mm. Ron Lord. Mm. Well, he's Lord Byron, of course, who morphed <laughs> into... I had to move Lord Byron forward, and I was just playing with the name. And then I thought, well, if you're called Ron Lord, you're a bit of a wide boy. So I thought, what is he going to do in this book? And I, I was worried about sex bots, because at the moment, the, the most manufactured bot is a sex bot. Is it? Yes. Uh, in, the, in the US and in China. China leads the world in sex bottery. So that part of the story is real. Oh, yes, it's real. Because I thought that was... No, I wish I, wish I were making it up. <laughs> But I'm not. No, you can check this out for yourself. Just Google it and you can find out the whole (laughs) gory story. There's a guy, uh, he's got a website, I think it's called Real Live Dolls. Anyway, it's uh, Mac McMullen. And he does believe that he's on a mission to help lonely men. Maybe he is. But, you know, in China, they've got a huge problem because the one-child policy has left a deficit of women. 33 million as we speak now. That's a lot of women that are missing. But the one thing that's missing from that is being with an actual person. I mean, yeah, but that comes with problems. It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, that using a hand or a mechanical device almost seems more human than using a thing, a chair, which is, you know, on some level what these things are. Mm. Am I wrong? Well, they're getting better all the time. They can they can look at you and blink now. And uh, they've got basic responses. Uh, some are more sophisticated, so they can have a conversation with you. Look at all this on YouTube and see what you think. I mean, look, the most sophisticated robot in the world at the moment is the handsome robot, Sophia. Um, people have probably seen her, and if not, they can certainly see her on YouTube. She appears to be able to have a conversation. She can't, of course, because it's programmed. But let's face it, most of us are programmed. We can have a lot of conversations with humans, and we just wish we'd never started so maybe as this develops it will be quite simple for you to talk to me me to talk to you and one of us to be a bot on some level of course 
on Facebook when you're dealing with bots. Yeah. I mean, the Turing test was right back in 1936 was that if you were in a conversation with a non-biological intelligence computer, would you be able to tell? That was going to be the test, and it still is. And that's what they're working on at Google X, you know, Facebook. Can you have a seamless interaction with a machine and put the phone down and think, I couldn't tell? And once that happens, that's going to be a bit crazy. But, you know, when you're in call centers now, you sort of wish you were talking to a bot because they're all reading from their robotic script and you can't get anything human out of them. And in a way, I'd prefer it if it was a machine than a degraded human. Because at that point, you know you're not going to get human responses. Yeah, and I hate that. I hate it when you meet a human and you get a non-human response. The worst of all being, I'm only doing my job. And you think your job is to be a human being. <laughs> Jeanette Winterson, I'd like to switch gears while I have you here all the way across from Manchester. I was looking at your biography, and mm. when I look at what prompted someone to become a writer, what did they read growing up, but I was kind of shocked to find out that, in fact, when you were growing up, you were in a Pentecostal home. There were only a handful of books basically the Bible and books like it. And so when you were growing up, except for one book, Memoir to Arthur, you had nothing. No, that's correct. Mrs. Winterson didn't approve of secular influences and books fell into that category. But I did have the public library because, you know, like all of us, she was a woman of contradictions and also a hypocrite. So she liked to read murder mysteries. Her reasoning being that if you know there's a body coming, it isn't so much of a shock. So I used to go there and get her murder mysteries, but also then realised that there was a whole world which said English literature in prose, A to Z, because libraries were real in those days. You know, they had books in them. So I just started at A. You started with A? Yeah. He's good at the beginning of the alphabet because you get Jane, Jane Austen, you get the Brontes, Conrad, Dickens, George Eliot. You know, you get her, when you start at the beginning of the alphabet for literature, you're, you're really on a roll. That's what I did. And then eventually you get to Asimov. Oh, no, Asimov would have been all right. It was Nabokov that was the problem. <laughs> but for me, it was wonderful because, you know, books are like that. They're portals into other worlds. And so for me, as a, a poor child in the north of England, uh, where books weren't important, finding that in the library was tremendous. And, of course, it's unmediated. You don't know which book. I mean, in my case, I just had a system which was the alphabet, crude but effective. But the thing is, there's nobody telling you what to read or how to think about what to read. You just do it. I've found over the past... 30 years that a book will show up and I'll decide to read it because I'm going to interview the author. And in a way, it's like walking in, mm -hmm. only it's not A to Z. Sometimes serendipity like that is way better than being told, read this, read that. Absolutely. And that's the worst thing about the bloody algorithms, which, you know, when you go, you go on Amazon or other bookmarks and it says, you know, if you like this, you'd also like that. And you think, no, actually, because that's not how it works. Because you don't want the mind just to go towards something it already knows. The glory of being human is that we go to what we don't know. So you were sneaking off books during mm. this period. Had you turned your back on religion? Were you dealing with the fact that you would wind up being gay? Was that all in the back of your mind? No, I, I, I never turned my back on religion as such. I simply had to go because the version of it was both condemnatory and exclusive rather than inclusive. So it was either Billy, you know, my way or the highway. And I didn't want that. I wanted something which was broader and more tolerant. And it seemed to me that if, if the phrase God is love, 
couldn't be a narrowed down prescriptive version of love. It couldn't be as small as we are. It had to be bigger than that if you believed in God at all. It was illogical to have a small size God. So that just didn't seem to me to make sense. And I was offended by things that didn't make sense. You know, we've got brains. We're meant to use them. So I went off and pursued my own my own way, which wasn't only about sexuality. It was about intellectual inquiry and trying to understand the world and my place in it. You know, I think thinking is good for us. And we don't do that so much anymore. We, we rely on what we hear from the news. Uh, we, we don't inquire in a very curious way. And, and, and that's, that's really dumbed us down, and I object to it. So when I was growing up, I couldn't be dumbed down. You know, my Pentecostal upbringing was dumbed down. I had to get bigger than that. When you got out, mm. uh, is that when you began realizing that maybe writing was your thing? How did that come about? It came about by accident, I guess, in that I trusted language and I believed that books made a difference in the world and they'd certainly made a difference to me. So I started writing one. It seemed like the logical next step and that was Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. I started that when I was 23 and then it was published the following year. And I suppose then I was off. It had begun. There was a readership. So I continued. You never thought you'd wind up being able to support yourself by writing. You were just writing, or were you? Were you thinking in those terms? Not at the beginning, I couldn't. And But, you know, I come from a fortunate generation, not only because we had free education, um, but because we had cheap rents, places to live. You know, you could live on very little. It was simpler. You know, the, the generation now really struggles because everything is expensive and they can't make the choice of thinking, okay, I'm just going to work in a cafe and do my own thing. It's hard now. I sometimes think that's one way of, of keeping people from becoming dissenting or from being difficult, you know, because bohemians are always difficult. So make sure that they can't make a living and they won't be so difficult. It was easy to live, actually, if you can live on very little. And if you're brought up poor, you can live on very little. It's not hard. You're used to it. You began writing and eventually, I'm going to skip ahead here, you began adapting your own work. Mm. What was it like adapting Orange into yeah. a screenplay and how did that come about? Somebody asked me at the BBC, look, we'd like to make this and would you like to do it? That was a different golden age of television when the BBC were actively going out looking for new voices and writers. Things weren't homogenised. And they were crazy enough to approach me about oranges and crazy enough to give me and film director B. Bankidron. She, she later went on to do Bridget Jones too and you know made a Hollywood career. But they just let us loose with some money and some ideas. And we know that's how the best things happen, when you haven't got some executive breathing down your neck every five minutes. So I didn't think, oh, God, A, what a great opportunity, or B, this will be difficult, or C, it'll be 25,000 other people being involved. It was very simple. But it turned out that was the only one. Have you ever thought about writing screenplay television? I mean, there is a play. Again, yeah. you adapted. But have you ever thought about moving more in that direction? Or do you just like prose and essays? I love prose. I, you know, I had a bad time with Miramax, uh, who hasn't, as it turns out, um, <laughs> because they optioned the passion and got me to do the screenplay on that. And then they loaded it with debt. It was a waste of my time, everybody's time. I think there's about three million and the clock's still ticking on it at the moment. And I thought, hold on, this is a waste of time. And I spoke to a lot of people who work in movies who, who made a fortune and whose lives were miserable. 
And I thought, I don't want to have a miserable life. I just want to have enough money to get by, do the things I love. And I do not want to be in thrall to people I don't care about and don't respect and who don't care about and don't respect me. So I just shut the door on movie land and got on with my work. And, you know, time is short. And if you can find something that you can do and you've got an audience out there, then I, I think that's the best ever. For you, Jeanette Winterson, I mean, everybody likes doing different things. Mm. Do you have a preference to writing essays or nonfiction versus fiction? Or is it a different part of your brain that's at work? No, it's just me that's at work. I think of myself having just like a little joiner shop, you know, a carpenter store. And somebody comes in and says, make me a table. Another day, it's like I'd like a pair of uh, shutters for my window. Uh, sometimes I'm making a beautiful cabinet for myself. So whatever's on the bench, I do. Because it's all language and it's all me operating. Obviously, there are different constraints, whether when it's nonfiction or whether it's journalism uh, or if it's, if it's storytelling. But it's, it's still the same stuff. You know, you have to be good with your hands because that's what language is. You know? And I am. And so I imagine that I should be able to do anything. After all these years, Jesus God, if I can't, it's, it's all gone wrong. <laughs> One thing I do ask a lot of writers when they've written a book that contains a lot of ideas, mm. whether by writing the book, which let's call it, I'm asking questions by writing a book. What kind of answers do you walk away with? In other words, before writing Frankenstein, you're going, I'm going to explore this. Mm. And then afterwards, what changes in you and Jeanette Winterson having written it? Does anything? Oh, yes. These books always move you on somewhere in your mind. So it's not only that I know a lot more now about the whole subject, and I do. It's also that certain questions then raise themselves from what I'm writing uh, and it's why I'm doing a book of 12 essays on AI actually after this I'm halfway through them now because I need to talk to myself a bit more about all of this I haven't finished exploring it so yes I mean it's it, it's been a springboard to another book but also the thing that has disturbed me most is realizing that after a hundred years of amazing progress for women and women's rights Women may be excluding themselves and being excluded from this tech AI future. It's being designed mostly by guys because women don't go into engineering, so they're not building the platforms and they don't go into programming. And this is a worry. So of the people who work in tech and AI, only about 20% at present are women and it's not building. So this could be problematic. We, you know, we could end up, uh, at the moment, we think the future is expanding for women. And fortunately, there are generations of young women who've never known anything different than I can be a doctor, I can be an astronaut, I can do what I want. That may change. And I really want to alert women to this. And I always say, you know, when I'm doing a, a tour, I just say, if you have daughters, teach them to code. The other part about that comes into gender mm. roles itself. I mm. mean, my nephews has my nephew has twins and a boy and a girl and they kind of get to dress the way they want they're mm. not being put into boxes and i think that's new mm. that seems to be new mm. so something is changing some awareness is coming on. well i think so i think much about the world <laughs> up to about now has been a bit better whether progress is reversing and it might be worries me you know because 
young kids are saturated with it by advertising. You know, a third of users online are under 18, but there's no protocols. We just imagine everybody is an adult. So we know there's a problem with watching porn. It's a problem for boys and girls. Now, it's spoiling early romantic relationships. You know, it's coarsening things for both sides. Uh, I worry about that. And I worry too that the deluge of advertising that kids are seeing all of the time is about shaping them into a reality that might not be for them. Well, it's also shaping them into a reality that may not even exist. It probably doesn't exist. No, it's it's an invented reality. And there's the Facebook, you know, the toxic social media business. You know, too, we've seen too many kids self-harming, even suiciding, because they're not getting enough likes or they're being bullied. Cyberbullying is is on the rise and rise, uh, because it's 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 anonymous, so it can be even more cruel than playground and schoolyard bullying. Um, and we, as the grown-ups in the room, have to start taking control over that. And whatever, I mean, however much Facebook, Google, Amazon, Yelp and Scream, they need to be regulated, if for no better reason than to save our kids. Jeanette Winterson, this all brings us back to things that eventually keep swirling around. Climate change, uh, fascism, Trump mm. over in America. Uh, Boris Johnson and Brexit over where you are. Over here in this country, people, progressives in particular, were complacent, and they're not anymore. Over there, is there a change because Brexit, again, is still on the horizon? Well, we've been consumed by Brexit for the last three years. It's, it's a complete and utter waste of time, energy, and money. I think we'll be a very divided nation afterwards. Um, we don't know what the consequences of Brexit are. We should be part of a united Europe. I'm, I have no doubt about that. This isn't the moment to start waving the nationalist flag. And if we don't get over nationalism globally, we're in big trouble, I think. Um, we really don't need to see the rise of nationalism again because we know it's, it, it's, a, it's a prelude to fascism in its various forms. Do I think Donald Trump is a fascist? He acts like one. Well, he also acts a bit demented. I don't yeah. know. I, it's hard. I think he probably is a bit demented, but that makes him easier to manipulate by whoever is also manipulating him. Well, what we're seeing here in the United States, at least, is pushback. But at the same time, every day we hear about something else that we haven't really heard about, mm. some other terrible thing that this administration is doing mm. that, of course, will be forgotten 20 four hours later mm. as we focus more on Ukraine or whatever. Mm. I try to think about what life is like 10 years from now and then throw in Frank Histein yeah. and the ideas there. And suddenly I'm at a loss. I can't predict 10 years from now. No, nobody can. That's new. It's unsettling. And it's it's different. You know, mostly history repeats itself in a form that we can recognize. But we haven't seen this before, by which I mean the two things that we have never seen before, a climate breakdown, I mean human beings haven't seen it, climate breakdown and artificial intelligence. This is completely new and therefore we don't know how to deal with either of these things and we've still got people saying climate breakdown isn't happening, which is beyond stupid and we're not having 
any regulation in place really for how AI is developing and being used. And and that does worry me. The idea is you can't regulate because you, you stifle innovation and creativity. Well, maybe you do, but maybe we need a little bit more stifling because <laughs> if we don't, we could end up you know, with a very scary society where the people in power and the people at the top have all the tools at their disposal to prevent anybody fighting back, pushing back, rebelling in any shape or form. It's not just that they'll have better weapons. It's that they will be monitoring us as individuals constantly and in every way. To me, that's already happening in Hong Kong. Yes, it is. But it's it can go further. You know, once If we have to have uh, chips implanted in our bodies... Uh, to monitor our movements. You know, it's going to be like a version of the ankle bracelet you have to wear when you're on parole. Uh, and of course, it will be offered as a benign technology, keeps us safer. Most things are told, we're told it'll keep us safer. But nobody cares whether we're safe or not. They just care whether we're tracked. Luckily, that doesn't find its way into your book because that may, maybe that would have been too much. I didn't want to write a dystopia. I didn't want to go into the future. I wanted to look at the now. The real live, you know, on the table events now, the sex bots, because it's a threat, where AI might be going and the fact that it, it is, un, it's not really controlled. Look, Google and Facebook are both putting millions and millions into AI privately. We don't know how far their research has got. We don't know what they're doing with it. They don't have to tell us. They're private companies. So it's not so much that governments will bring this technology forward, although China and Russia are in the race to be first. I think it's just as likely that it will be a private firm of the size of Google who makes the first breakthrough. And then what? Okay, you live in Manchester. You talk to people. You've been around England. Brexit, do you have any idea what that could lead to? No, because the left all over the world is in disarray, in, in my country, in your country. And so we're not offering a coherent response to right-wing projects, whether they come from Trump or whether they come from the arch-Brexiteers in my country. Um, and the left does need to start to consolidate and to put small differences aside and say we have to defeat this thing. Because when you add up, add up various votes for the left, it's always more than the hateful right that continually gets into power because their vote isn't split. And we have to do something about that. We've still just about got democracy operating <laughs> in the West, the so-called free world. But we're not making the most of it while it lasts. And in, I, I, if we had any opposition in the UK that was remotely sensible, we could defeat our problems at home really easily. Boris Johnson would be gone. And I think it's the same for you. You know, you're coming up to an election. What's going to happen? It just matters um, that the neoliberal project is stopped. And that can never be stopped if there's a right-wing government in power. Jeanette Winterson. You said you were working on a collection of essays about AI. Mm. You were also working on a novel. No, not doing another novel for a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get these essays out of the way first. Then we'll see. Are the essays going to be published separately or just in a volume? In a volume. There are 12 of them. So it'll be 12 5,000-word essays, uh, and it's called 12 Bytes AI. Any chance that Frank Kiss Stein could be a TV series or a film? Don't know. Again, I wouldn't want to waste years getting embroiled in that. But if something comes up that looks like it might happen, then I'd go down that road. But, you know, I am so wary. How long have I got left? 20 years of doing good work? I don't want to waste it with some TV guys. 
You've been listening to an interview with Jeanette Winterson, whose book is titled Frank Kiss Stein. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>